Welcome to episode 197, Family Dynamics and Challenges Associated with Aging Loved Ones, featuring Gabrielle Giuliano Villani, licensed clinical social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software built for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit bestnotes.com slash clearlyclinical for a free demonstration. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am delighted to be joined again by Gabrielle Giuliano Villani. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and she had previously joined us for a wonderful and heartfelt discussion about polyvagal theory. And today she's joining us to talk about family dynamics and challenges associated with aging. Thank you so much for joining us again, Gabrielle. I am so super duper excited to be here for a second time and share all of this lovely info with you and your listeners. Wonderful. So why don't you take a moment and give us the background about you and how you came to have this particular specialization and why you felt it necessary to come back and talk about this particular topic? Sure. So uh, in my career before I went into private practice, I was a care manager for Humana, the insurance company, and I worked specifically with their Medicare Advantage population. So everybody was elderly or on disability. And a lot of it was this, was managing the dynamics with the family, talking to them about resources that were available, what to expect for next steps. And then as I went out on my own in private practice, I initially specialized in the Medicare population also, and then grew a group practice to specialize in that as well. And so this was a topic that just came up again and again because as people age, it's not just them, it's their family. We're talking about tons of stuff about resources and what's available, what it looks like, what decisions need to be made, what types of things can cause conflict and how to move through that. And um, we were actually talking about this before we started recording, so I'm going to say it again, that I have also had a lot of people reach out to me for training or consultation on this topic because they haven't, you know, either dealt with it or they didn't get a lot of training in their, you know, in grad school or whatever it is about this issue. And also the statistic that I also feel is important to mention that less than 1% of psychologists specialize in geriatrics. So there's definitely a big need, I think, for this to be discussed more. Agreed. And as you mentioned, we were talking before we were recording. I remember having a life cycle development class in my master's program, and we maybe talked about aging for that one few hour class. And I honestly can't say right now, this many years later, if there's any information from that that I can recall, you know, that, that it, it didn't stick. Um, and as we're looking at the dynamics in the United States related to aging, changes in the medical system, this is a topic we need to talk about more. <laughs> so I'm glad that you're here. And I also want to note for our listeners, we have a wonderful episode featuring Dr. Regina Kep uh, discussing ageism and working with older adults and some of the myths around older adulthood. 
So I think this is a beautiful compliment to that conversation with Dr. Kett. So Gabrielle, where shall we start? <laughs> That's a great question. I think it's helpful to kind of start with some more foundational things that maybe to some people are obvious, but not everybody knows this. And so I usually kind of start about like, well, first of all, we know older adults or the elderly or however, I always would ask my clients how they wanted me to refer to their age group um, is people who are 65 and over. Um, although, you know, this stuff could come up earlier on as well as we have people who can be diagnosed with terminal illnesses much earlier and might um, be dealing with some of this, these things in their family too. Um, but I also think it's important to talk just for a minute or so about chronic health conditions and what that means because if you work with this population, they will have them. That is just what happens as we get older. Um, we have usually at least one, but again, as we age, at least more than one, I know that it contributes to a lot of doctor's visits and a lot of resources that we use. And so when we're talking about chronic health conditions, um, that means it's something that lasts for a year or more. It impacts somebody's um, ADLs or activities of daily living or their functioning, and it requires ongoing medical attention. And so those are a lot of the things that we would be dealing with, like um, dementias, MS, diabetes, chronic pain syndrome, ALS, heart disease, stroke, cancer, COPD, to name just a couple. And when bringing the chronic illness consideration into this why do you think it's critical for clinicians to be considering that element when thinking about life transitions in older adulthood? So with chronic health conditions, there can often come cognitive deficits, um, especially when we're talking about something like dementia or even cancer if somebody is um, getting chemo or treatment for that. And it gets worse. It does not get better. And that's a really unfortunate reality, but it's something to consider when working with these clients and also working with their family members, um, just the psychoeducation piece of it too. I know I've had situations in the past where somebody did have multiple chronic health conditions. It was impacting them and the family just had a hard time coming to terms with that. I've had people who were literally actively dying and their family was like, nope, we just need a little bit more PT or OT and they'll be fine. And so it's important for us as clinicians to understand that these are things that are progressive. The symptoms may worsen and being able to work with that on our end and also preparing our clients for what they may need to expect and their family too. There is so much to talk about with this topic and I think you and I both know we're only going to scratch the surface. <laughs> yes, let's, that's definitely true. <laughs> yeah, um, let's talk about the changes that many people go through as they age. One that's occurring to me immediately is the change in friendships and relationships to community. I have seen in the generation before me and my family their friend groups getting smaller because of people experiencing chronic illness because of death and the enormity of the grief talking to older family members and saying oh what are you doing this weekend i have another wake to go to 
And then I think we're going to go to my favorite restaurant. You know, this is now just part of what life looks like at a certain point. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of aging 101 before we dive into the family part of it? Yes, that is such a good example and very accurate is the friend groups do get smaller and clients will bring that up a lot in sessions. Like I used to have this huge community and now half of them have died and the other half maybe are in memory care or they had to move in with their kids or they're in a facility and I can't talk to them as much anymore. Um, So that's a really big one. Also, just thinking about grief and loss, you know, not just with grieving relationships, but grieving a life that you no longer have, that you maybe used to go to work every day, or used to go for a run every day, or whatever your hobbies were, maybe you can't do those as much anymore or at all, um, considering where you're at. So I've, you know, I'm thinking a lot about my chronic pain clients who can't can't work. Um, they can't drive. They feel that loss of independence. Um, they may have to move into a facility, which is a really difficult transition for a lot of people. Um, so the grief, there's a lot of grief because it's not just, again, with the relationships, there's so many different areas that we can be grieving. Um, and also sometimes the there's estrangement or difficulties with sort of diving into the family part a little bit, but if their kids don't live close by, if their kids have a different idea of what their life should look like than what it actually looks like, um, there are just a lot of layers and things that people are dealing with that often are not within their control. If you're game to take a little jaunt over into life stage theories, when we're looking at Eric Erickson's stages of development, over 65, integrity versus despair. Can you speak a little bit about this life stage? The, the benefit of it is immense wisdom, but also, as you've mentioned, grief and a whole lot of loss. Does that mean that older adults are at higher risk for depression because of these recurrent losses to independence, friend group, family, things like that? Yes, absolutely. They are at pretty high risk for depression, especially because they're often isolated, which we know is another risk factor for depression as well. And sometimes there's, um, you know, again, depending on the person, but generationally there can be this idea that like, I don't want to ask for help and I'm just going to deal with this on my own. Um, This isn't a problem that I need to deal with. And actually, So I do remember reading from the CDC that white men over the age of 65 have triple the rate for dying by suicide. So this is not the kind of thing that we can overlook in terms of the impact of grief. And then as I'm zooming out, expanding into how that grief, depression, suicide risk can bleed over into family dynamics. So when we're conceptualizing the changes within a family because of one or more members aging. Where do we even start? (laughs) Also a good question. (laughs) So I feel like this is so important to to try and be proactive, although as you know, these things 
don't always work out that way. And I understand that too. But um, it's better to be proactive if we can, because when somebody is already sick or in um, more of these like long-term stages, you know, where the dementia may be progressing, we're rushing, we're stressed, trying to make these decisions and we're not making them from, um, you know, our rational brain. If we're going to be talking about polyvagal theory (laughs) and, um, so it can impact it and it's, it's much harder to, treat. That's another thing that I see as well is that uh, oftentimes older adults have a lot of the physical symptoms of depression. And so they go to their doctor and they're like, you know, I'm having, I'm sleeping too much. I'm sleeping too little. They're, my appetite is weird. I'm like having GI stuff. And, you know, it takes longer because we are, we're just looking at the physical piece. And then what would happen when I was still practicing is I would get a client who's like, yep, we've been seeing their doctor for three years. We can't figure it out. So now we think it's a mental mental health problem. And it's so much more advanced than it would have been if we could have intervened much earlier. To recap and clarify, older people may be exhibiting signs of mental illness that we're missing. Yes. Because we're maybe expecting the same presentation in somebody who's older that we would in someone in a younger life stage. Exactly. And I also think, you know, they might call it something different too. So to use their language um, and talk about it in a way that resonates with them. So I remember like I had a client who was very tearful, um, wasn't doing any of her hobbies anymore. She was talking about dying. And when I came in and the word depression was mentioned, she was like, I'm not depressed. I don't have depression. That's not what this is. And so using it in a term that made more sense to her where she just kind of called it like, I can't remember, but she had her own term for it, something more about like sadness. And so using that instead of being like, oh no, you you have major depressive disorder single, recurrent, moderate, whatever. (laughs) Like, you know, we want to use language that the client can, um, can understand. You bring up an important point as well, which is the cultural conditioning for any particular generation, knowing that it's highly variable based on someone's, um, background, but also what do these words mean in different generations? So if we look at the way that teenagers and young adults, for example, are using social media and there's a lot of self-diagnosing, like that's a, that's a common theme I'm seeing in training these days is a young adult will walk into therapy and go, I have this because I saw on XYZ social media platform (laughs) that I have depression, um, which is very different than what depression, what that word uh, inspires, what the connotation is for a different generation of folks. Totally. And even I see a lot to trauma and to folks of a different population, um, they don't really resonate with that. Or they're like, this isn't trauma. Trauma is like when you are in a war and I was never in a war, but they'll talk to me about things throughout their life that had happened that were absolutely traumatic and that they are carrying with them and having responses to those events that happen that, you know, they, um, they don't really see it that way. And so again, just using the language that works for them and that resonates with them because it's, it's 
sometimes I just find a little bit of, I guess you could call it resistance, but just again, generationally, it's like, we don't ask for help. I don't need help. These are just things that happened and we're just going to deal with them. Even see that in my own family sometimes. And so again, just like that education and Also, when we are working with this population, I also find it's really helpful to talk about, you know, sometimes it just takes a little longer. Sometimes we really need to work on that building the rapport and the trust before we start dropping words like trauma response and depressive episode, (laughs) if at all. (laughs) You bring up an important point about the language that we may use clinically and what the connotation is for us and what it is for our clients, regardless of their backgrounds, like what the words actually mean for them in the translation. But also the idea of building rapport. I have entered the age where I heard myself saying, how old is that doctor? (laughs) (laughs) And then I went, oh, the thing happened when I started calling a a 20-something kid. Um, That happened to me yesterday. (laughs) For anybody listening to this who is 20-something, I'm not referring to you as a kid. Um, But the differences in language and how we view ourselves relative to other people around us, that when we're thinking about the relationship between client and therapist – you know, going back to those Ericksonian stages, what's associated with older adulthood is wisdom. And how do we, as someone younger, work with somebody older to establish trust and rapport for exactly the reason that I said that I walked into a doctor's office and went, are you old enough to shave? Um, <laughs> you know, it, and and it's just that automatic thought of, can this person meet me where I'm at? Can this person hold or understand or respect what I'm bringing into this room. And regardless of what that factor is, in this case, we're discussing specifically age, but that that's an element that's always going to be in the clinical room for us. Can this person hold what I'm bringing in? Can they hold me? And yes. so I you know, walked into that doctor's office with that automatic thought and noticed that it was happening. So if it's happening for us as consumers, it's happening to our clients as well. And that I imagine that's an important thing to bring into the room of, you know, I'm, I'm noticing that there's this large discrepancy between our ages. What that, what's that like for you? Yeah, exactly that. And I would even have clients ask me that too, because I sound and I look younger than I am also. And so sometimes that's really important to them that they want somebody who's closer to their age and that's fine. And sometimes they would just be like, I just want somebody to listen to me and to hold space for me. And I think that you can do that. And again, sometimes you would need to have that conversation about what is that like for you? Um, but it's it's just funny that you use that example because I had the exact same thing happen to me yesterday with the dentist. And I was like, is this person like old enough to even have gone through med school? <laughs> and I noticed it and I was like, that was a thought that you had. Let's back that up for <laughs> right. a second. <laughs> Look at that automatic thought that just occurred. <laughs> Let's notice it and remember that like, yes, they obviously are if they're working in this office and, you know, to put my trust out there that they're hiring people that know what they're doing and it was fine. But again, just like noticing those thoughts and how they can come up in the therapy space. So moving into the different stages of family life. So I right now in my life, I am in a very explicit life stage, which is the young child 
family life stage, which is such an unusual one, unusual and exhausting one, um, that has very unique and specific demands. Every life stage. Can you speak about some of the demands and changes for families that have the parent or parents or significant um, figures in the older generation transitioning into older adulthood? Yeah. And that can be hard for a number of reasons for um, just like physically day to day, like they might need to start caring for their mom or their dad or another loved one. And so that is a lot, right? Like, and they might also have young kids. So they're in between, they're taking care of their kids and they're taking care of their parents or these other people in their life as well. And that might include just logistically difficulty, trying to figure out who is taking this person to the doctor's appointment this week, who can go get the groceries for them. Can somebody stop by and make sure they're taking their meds? Or maybe you're the one who's doing all of that. And also, I need to pick up my kid from school. I need to get them to soccer. I need to feed them and bathe them and tend to their everyday needs. And then also this idea of the the role and what that looks like, because that's a big shift too. I was your daughter and you were taking care of me and now I'm taking care of you, and I'm the one that's responsible for you and checking in on you. And how does that feel? What does that look like? Is that an everyday thing? Or are there moments where you still can be a daughter? Can you make those moments happen to help maybe manage some of that uncomfortableness or whatever is coming up with that? Um, Because it's a big deal. It's a big change. You mentioned the change in roles what is notoriously now called the sandwich generation. Can you speak to that phenomenon, define it, and explain the challenges within that life stage if somebody is tending to their children while also tending to an older adult in their lives? So they're sandwiched in between both of those things. They're a parent and they're caring for their own kids, but they're also, just as an example, a son or a daughter caring for their parents also. So they are caregivers to two separate people. Um, And that can be challenging, again, just logistically, like I'm taking on all this stuff. I may be a first-time parent. I'm also caring for my own parents, which I've never done before. What does that look like? What does it include? What do I need to do? Do I need to do their meds? Can they handle that on their own? Um, Do I need to come over and clean the house? Do I need to come over and make sure that they didn't fall overnight? Like, Can they be left alone by themselves? But I also have my own kids that I need to care for and tend to as well. And also when we're thinking about just like long-term planning for the future, there's challenges there with differing interests or beliefs or values that I feel like my mom should be in an assisted living and maybe your mom does not agree with that. So those are other issues that can come up. And another common thing is that we may assume that it's an easy conversation when those things are coming up also like oh i'm they're going to be on the same page as me i already found them a place to go and they're going to agree with it or it could also be the opposite where they're worried about it and we're like we are going to just keep delaying this conversation until something happens or hospital visit or something and then it becomes even more difficult and stressful these are 
notoriously difficult conversations to have. Speaking as someone who has been attempting uh, to have these conversations and the immense discomfort around them. So I'm thinking for myself, talking to older family members about, you know, do you have medical directive plan? Have you thought about a will? What are your thoughts about memory care or assisted living? And that that was not a single conversation. <laughs> like that, that was a low and slow, um, in my case, over the course of years, um, because for the older family member, there was so much discomfort. And I think for a point there, a lot of denial that's a normal part of coming to acceptance where we can actually talk about it. But those are really uncomfortable conversations. They are. They are not easy ones to have. It's not like, what's going to be for dinner tonight, right? Like we are, we're going deep. We're talking about our own mortality, our parents' mortality. We're coming to terms with, you know, they might die soon. Or on the other side of the coin, right? I might die soon. What does that mean? What does that look like? Um, what feelings come up with that? And so these are not one-time conversations. That's why I really encourage people to start talking about it sooner rather than later, even though I know we don't want to have these conversations. Sometimes um, family therapy can help with these things or uh, there are like case managers um, who specialize in doing this work also. And so they can be kind of like a mediator, which sometimes can be helpful if it feels challenging to have these discussions, but starting to come up with a plan and again, talking about them before the big thing happens and before there's a huge hospital visit or huge change. And sometimes we don't know that, right? Like if you get diagnosed with cancer, you don't know. Or I've had clients who were very healthy and active and they had a stroke and they woke up the next day and they can't walk anymore. And so we don't always know. Um, but if you can start to plan a little bit in advance, it can just make things run much more smoothly in the future. And again, tending to your own stuff that comes up because a lot of it will. It's uncomfortable. It's scary. Um, feels really, I, I just keep going back to scary because that's like the word that always comes up to me when you like think about losing somebody. It's like, it's a loss, it's a void. And you're thinking about what is my life going to look like afterwards? So just, you know, having good um, things in place for yourself too, to work through those conversations as you have them. As we're talking about this, there's so many moments from my own life and my family that I'm thinking of, and I'm sure you are too, and I'm sure for our listeners, and also acknowledging the complexity of family systems, that there are older adults who are estranged from their families, that there are um, people who are not able to contribute to care for a myriad of reasons of older generations. There are the sociocultural expectations, ethnocultural expectations about um, you know, giving back to an older person and the ill will that could exist in a relationship if there was abuse in that relationship. I mean, it just opens up so much. And as you said, our fears about our own mortality that make this feel like a minefield. There's, there's a lot to it. It is very complex. There is no one size fits all as there never is, but there are just so many layers because we're not talking about like just one piece or one isolated incident. We are looking at 
everything over the lifespan. There could have been abuse. There could have been, you know, just things in the family that the roles were the way the roles were. And now we're switching those roles and that feels different and uncomfortable. We're thinking about our own life and what do we want to accomplish in our lifetime when we're 85 years old. Um, And also culturally that that looks different too. Some people value independence. Some people value aging in place and staying at home as long as possible. So it's really important to just do the assessment as best you can and get as much info as you can to help support where you can, but also knowing that we don't know everything and that things are fluid and they change. One of the themes I'm picking up already is proactiveness, the value of being proactive, not waiting, ideally, until that hospitalization or until the illness has progressed to a degree that it may interfere or inhibit these conversations. I know I've absolutely been in the room for conversations where there was an older family member that had an acute medical event that completely changed the trajectory that everybody was just carrying along, walking along the same path that they were accustomed to visiting at the holidays, whatever the norm is. And then something significant happens and everything just completely spins out of how are we going to manage this now? Where is the money going to come from? How are we going to find care? Is there anyone else that can help me as the kind of assigned person responsible manage this? And I'm also thinking of someone in my life who had that happen with, in their case, both parents within 24 hours of each other. Acute medical events. Oh, yes. Just, I mean, so rapid. And this unbelievable um, change for what this person knew of their family, what they were anticipating, and then everything changed dramatically, which is not uncommon. I mean, that's not not an uncommon story for um, couples, for one person, for older couples to become ill, and then for the other to rapidly develop their own illness So that's not unusual, but then the stress for what's presumably the adult child that's now left responsible for the financial considerations, the insurance, the medical decisions, not to mention their own emotions about what's going on. It's enormous. It's huge. And it's just, it does feel overwhelming because it's not just one thing. It's not just figuring out the insurance. It's like, no, I'm really, I'm struggling to feel how I'm feeling right now. And I have to make all of these huge changes about, you know, even finding the will or finding the durable medical power of attorney, or, you know, if somebody like, again, God forbid, had brain damage and they can't care for themselves or care for their finances. Like, is there a plan in place for that? How do I get into the bank account and pay the mortgage? Like, there are just so many things um, that can come up. And so, again, you know, it's helpful to just have these things done ahead of time. And if we can plan as best as we can, we don't always know, but it is helpful when you have those, um, a lot of states call them a most form or like a, a durable power of attorney or a living will so that we know what we can do. And I also wanted to mention, since we were talking about ethical, cultural considerations, that there is research that shows that 
people who complete advanced directives and wills tend to be white and educated and from upper socioeconomic categories. And non-white and non-Anglo ethnic groups are less likely to have those living wills. Um, they're less likely to have engaged in discussions with family, and they're less likely to have a medical power of attorney. I can hear in the cultural consideration too, how they're just such deep norms in every culture. There's different ones about how we talk to and engage with elders, for example. And so I'm glad you brought up that element that we're talking, you and I are talking about this as two white women in the consideration and also looking outside of whatever cultural background we may come from and what's expected and anticipated there to an observation of what is comfortable and the norm for somebody else's family system. It's so important to just remember that, that we are all different. We all come from different places, different ethnicities and different cultures, and it, it looks different everywhere. So again, some people might um, really value, you know, sticking it out and getting a ton of treatment and maybe going into a facility, whereas others might say like, no, I just want to stay home and it just needs to run its course and I want my family here with me. So um, yeah, just important to make note of that. When you and I are recording this, knowing that this is a population you've worked with a great deal, you have probably a concept in your mind of best case scenario. Are we thinking about this as working with a family that has aging adults, or are we really looking at this as working with the individual aging adults or the generation below that may be responsible for caregiving? Like, how, how do you conceptualize the best case scenario to support families going through this conflict? Is it family therapy? Is it individual therapy and inviting in somebody else? Like, how do you see this playing out? I think best case scenario, it's probably a blend. I would say typically what ends up happening is it starts with the individual and then we're bringing the family in or we're doing family therapy. But what happens a lot is that somebody has a chronic illness or they get a terminal diagnosis and everybody else in their life is like, oh shit, they're dying. Now we need to figure this all out. We have to work through all of the stuff from the past 60, 70, sometimes that often, sometimes not quite that much, but they're like all this stuff that happened in childhood, all of these things I never got to say, like now we have to do it because they're dying. And again, just speaks to the importance of therapy, right? And, and working through those things before um, because it might not happen and having to, you know, have be okay with that too, that things might not get wrapped up into a nice, neat little present and everybody gets closure because that's just not how it works. In your experience, what are some signs that a family might be struggling to adapt to these changing family roles? Like how, what are the yellow flags, red flags that you're seeing of, oh, these, these role changes are really starting to bubble up and become interfering? I think when there is increased conflict or um, and when I say that, I mean, like, I'm thinking about like siblings <laughs> and, um, 
that like assuming things um, and conflict coming up when we're assuming things, conflict coming up in the difference and ideas about long-term care or other decisions like finances. Those are all things that I see a lot. Um, I think other like indicators or maybe red flags are when there's a lot of control issues. And so one person in the family might want to be taking the reins on everything. And even that looks like not just controlling, again, the decisions about finances or long-term care, but trying to control the disease progression, which is something that we can't always do. So going back to that example of, you know, somebody was actively dying and the family was like, nope, they just need a little bit more little bit more PT, a little bit more OT, and, and they'll be fine and they'll work through this. And um, that denial is powerful and it can really complicate things. It can lead to complicated grief when that person has passed. Um, and so the denial is a really, really big one that I see that, um, again, can be helpful to work through before we get to that point. This would be its own conversation. How do clinicians work with that denial. If you have an adult client who comes into therapy and is saying, my parent has entered hospice and the doctor is just being thorough. They're only doing this uh, to make sure that everything is okay and my parent has resources, but I'm sure they're going to come out of hospice and everything is going to be fine. We just need to change the medications. That is a pretty loaded situation for a clinician. Like how, how do we approach this? How do we talk about this? Again, for you as someone who has worked with this population specifically, how do we try to plant seeds about acknowledgement and proactivity in the face of denial? That is an amazing question and could be its own eight hour training, <laughs> but it's a very good point because it's very common. And I was actually doing another podcast with uh, a hospice nurse uh, kind of about this. And she brought that up too, because it happens all the time because we don't, I don't want my mom to die. I don't want my dad to die. Right. Like you don't, you don't want to face that. So I think of this in a couple ways. I, when you were asking me that question, I was thinking of, you know, more factual based and thinking about like acknowledging and educating on death and the disease process and what that looks like. But when somebody is in a place where they are anxious or worried and stressed, like that doesn't resonate, right? Like we can't, we can't hear that and we may not want to hear that. So holding space for that, asking questions about what this means for you, how does this feel for you? Um, are there other times in your life where you had to deal with grief and loss and what did that look like for you? I, you, I love to ask that question because that can really uncover a lot of what's coming up now. Yeah, just talking about, I'm thinking about like values too and moving away and moving towards how is this serving you? How is this not serving you? Is, you know, the denial, what what is that part of you that's denying and what what is it protecting or what questions does it have? You had mentioned the ethnocultural differences in how different groups view aging, view responding to 
medical challenges, things like that. With that in mind, that there is this cultural element to discussion of things like wills, for example, how do you bring up these conversations with the adults or older adults in individual therapy? Also a good question. So I think when, um, again, you would want to tailor this to if you who you're talking to, if you're talking to the actual older adult or if you're talking to their kids or their caregivers. Um, but I just love the piece of the psychoeducation. Like, do you have one? And I've talked to clients about this in individual therapy too, who are older and who might come to session and say, I just got diagnosed with, you know, a terminal illness or I have dementia and it's getting worse or a caregiver who's telling me that like my mom has dementia and I can see that it's getting worse. And so starting to just unravel and uncover like what, what is the plan and again, if somebody came to me and they're like, I just got diagnosed, I probably wouldn't have that conversation immediately. I just want to clarify Seven that. Seven minutes in. <laughs> right. Like, where, where is your medical power of attorney form located in your house? Like, obviously, it would give space and timing is always important when having these conversations, too. Um, but talking about that, like, what do you what can we talk about that? What does that look like for you? I know it can be a hard place to go, but as things may start to progress, how do you want that to look? What would be the best scenario for you? Um, and sometimes people don't know. And sometimes people are like, no, I've already thought about how I want to die. And this is what I want it to look like. And, you know, my medical POA is right on my fridge and my kids know it's there. But usually the people who are coming to see me in therapy haven't quite moved to that point yet. And sometimes they also don't even know. They, they're like, I don't know what a medical power of attorney means. I've never heard that term before. I didn't know that's something that I needed. Um, and again, those conversations don't happen as often in um, oppressed populations and minorities because they might not have access to that information or, again, cultural things where it's not being spoken about. Um, and so just... I think being transparent about that and doing that with compassion. You don't need to say, oh, you're dying. Let's figure this out. But saying, you know, let's let's do this in the best way that we can so that it happens, hopefully, how exactly how you want it to. And let's set that up for success and try and not, um, you know, cause more stress when you're sick and just having it in place now. And what does that look like? What barriers are there? Um, what things need to happen? Maybe we do need to have a session with or a couple sessions with your family or your caregivers and talk through the next steps. As you were discussing it, I hear the theme of PEI, prevention and early intervention, that it's trying to head off the fallout. I've seen the fallout. I have seen it when it goes well, and I have seen it when it goes bad. And I think what stands out for me in reflecting on both this as a human being, um, but also as a clinician, is how ill-prepared we are. That so many times we don't anticipate what's going to happen, and so something happens that completely alters the trajectory. And I've, I've absolutely talked with caregivers who are in a position to make very difficult decisions very rapidly, and years later are saying, if I knew what I know now, I would have handled that situation differently. 
And I don't think we as therapists can pull out some magical list of check boxes and go, okay, we talked about if your parent has a stroke, you know, like (laughs) we can't, we can't go down every eventuality. Um, But I'm still hearing the idea of trying to be as proactive as we can. My next question for you, Gabrielle, when we're looking at a situation where the hard, challenging, bad things have already happened, how do we support the people who are going through this? Speaking as somebody who has significant chronic illness uh, in the family and having been in multiple different caregiver roles, the stress cannot be overstated. How do we support family members who are going through this? Because as you said, you are balancing so many responsibilities while also your own feelings about what's happening. Yes. And I can definitely relate to what you just said also. And what always comes up for me first is just compassion and holding space. And sometimes, you know, I think we're like, oh, how can I help you? Well, that person probably can't answer that question. Who's going through that? They don't know. (laughs) And they have too much other shit going on that that's like one more decision that they need to make. So if you are looking at it in from the outside, I often find that even just asking, like, you're on my mind and I was thinking about you today and I just wanted to check in and I love you. And, you know, I'm here if you want to talk or if there's something that you need, but also you can assess it from the outside too of like, I see this person really struggling. Can I, I don't know, pay for their groceries? Can I do like a meal train type of thing? Can I help them get other resources or support in place? Can I pick their kids up from school next week? So that's one less thing that um, they need to do because these all of these things and even talking about chronic illness they are invisible stuff so you know i don't have a gash on my forehead that's bleeding but i might feel like i do internally right um and uh just thinking about chronic illness this brought this up for me if you've never heard of the spoon theory it can be really helpful um and if you don't know what that is and you're listening it is a theory that um, a woman with lupus came up with and she talked about how each spoon is like one unit of energy and i think you get 14 spoons in a day. I don't know why we decided on 14, but that's what it is. (laughs) And you can use that to communicate with people in your life too. Like I used up all my spoons today. I don't have any more. Um, You know, if you want me to clean the kitchen, it's going to take up the rest of the energy that I have. So would you rather have me clean the kitchen or would you rather have me do bath time with the kids? Like that can be a way to communicate also because they're, again, just the complexity of all the layers and all of the things that you may be feeling. And again, still having to live your life um, and having those logistics of things that need to happen to run the household or to run your career. I also know know Spoon Theory, and I appreciate that reminder of recognizing where our energy is and if we're out of spoons and giving that reality to people, I think can be really powerful. Like, yeah, people run out of spoons. When you're facing the situation, you're going to run out of spoons. And I think that normalization is important. You had mentioned some resources earlier 
about case management, things like that. I know what I've experienced as a parent with a child with chronic illness. Sometimes it feels like you're in it alone, that there are so few resources available to you. Um, or if there are, I made a phone call two weeks ago and they said, okay, we'll get you on the wait list. It's about 12 to 14 months right now. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> and I went, okay, well, I'll put my name on the wait list. Um, been 12 to 14 months. I would like this resource. I like it now, but 12 to 14 <laughs> months is better than never. Um, what are some of the resources that can come from insurance companies that can come from, um, different organizations, nonprofits, hospital systems? Can you speak to some of that? Because I think a lot of it, as you said, comes down to education that we may not even know that those resources exist. So we can't offer them on to clients as something they may be able to explore. Yes. There are so many different types of things. There are resources through um, like the association or the foundation for the disease. So like um, the Alzheimer's Association or um, the Multiple Sclerosis Society. There are things like that. There are local resources, like your local area on aging. Um, We often think just of hospice as like a place we go when we're dying, but hospice has many, many resources for before that too. They do tons of workshops and classes and support groups, Um, local nonprofits. One of the ones I was thinking of when you were talking that that I've personally used and is in many communities is the cancer support community. Um, yes. So that can also be a really helpful resource. I know there are groups available for family members. There are groups available for people who have the diagnosis. And as a family member, I was really grateful to have that resource to step into a room of other people that were having some of the same challenges and concerns and emotional burdens that I was. Um, so I'm glad you're naming some of those community resources that there are so many nonprofits and organizations that have funding available for resources that are diagnosis specific. And that's an asset, a resource that sometimes we don't even think about. Um, Can you speak to some of the resources that may come from the medical profession? Like what do hospitals, like do hospitals have something available? You mentioned case management. how do we get more information, for example, about how an insurance plan works? Or does it cover somebody coming into the home for um, daily care, for example? Um, so one other one that I that I just remembered is Volunteers of America. And so that's another really big one where they do a lot of work with, um, especially the elderly. They can come in and do all kinds of things, but they also have different types of support as well. Hospital systems often have support groups workshops. They might even have groups about this is how your insurance works and this is how the plan works. Um, Insurance companies might as well. So again, I worked for Humana and I did care management for them. Um, And they had not just in-home, they don't do in-home care managers anymore, but they still, I know, have case managers um, like a lot of insurance plans do. Actually, I think most of them have case managers. And so you can just call and ask for that resource or support. In Colorado, we have um, the Division of Regional something governments. It's called Dr. Cog. And they have case managers. They have healthcare navigation. Um, So you could just try and, I guess, Google in your area or just connect to a social worker who works in that space. A lot of doctor's offices do integrated care now. 
sorry, integrated care now. So they'll have social workers in the office or RN care managers who can direct you to different resources because there are so many unique, different things. Um, like another one in Colorado, just because that's where my practice was. So I, I know all the resources there was called Friends of Man. And like, you probably couldn't even find that if you Googled it, but they had funds for all different kinds of things that were not covered by insurance. They would pay for ramps. They would pay for people's glasses. They would pay for hearing aids. So there was a lot of things out there. It's definitely just a matter of finding them. And as social workers, that's our jam. That's our bread and butter. We we love resources and collaborating. So find one in your community and ask them because I guarantee you they'll have a ton. Even adult protective services, um, you know, that's part of what they do too. They don't just respond if there is neglect um, or somebody, you know, being taken advantage of, they also have resources available to you as well. So your county human services is another good place to go to. Fantastic. Thank you. Another resource that I'm thinking of that we can provide education about is relating to paid family leave benefits, if that's an option in your state. Many states now are are moving toward building out paid family leave benefit programs, or at the very least, things like FMLA which is protected medical leave that may be unpaid, but would at least protect an employee from losing their employment during a certain period of time so that they could manage this. Speaking from my own experience, I can't tell you the number of times that I've said as a caregiver, this is an entire separate job. Like I spend as much time coordinating resources, filling prescriptions, setting up appointments, just sending messages to different providers, as you know, I spend as much time doing that as I do in my nine to five. And that that was a challenge that I didn't anticipate. And that's a challenge that we as providers need to anticipate of what what's the impact on this person's livelihood if they're employed and they are just burning out because there's so much facing them. Um, and I want to note when it comes to paid or unpaid protected family leaves, those are things that can be written by the provider for the person you're caring for. So in my case, it was going to my child's provider and saying, can you please write uh, this order for the state and provide the documentation about my child's diagnosis so that I can get this benefit? And I can't imagine not having that resource and the flexibility So certainly that's another thing that we can provide to our clients who are in this position of, well, maybe you can't stay at work every day right now. Maybe you can take off half a day per week. Maybe we can organize two days per week, or maybe you just take all of it off. Let's talk about the money. And as you're talking about this, I can hear just that thread of case management, of connecting with resources, but also the direct coordination I'm assuming of what can we do in session today to take something off of your list when you leave here today. And even just processing that because when you were just saying, right, like 
you know, you can use FMLA or get an accommodation, but then does that decrease your pay and the stress of that and what that looks like? Um, I've seen that before too, where, you know, somebody was like, I was able to change my job so that it's more flexible and I'm only working 20 hours a week, but now we have less money that's coming in. And so that's, you know, difficult also. So there's, there's just so many things and caregiving is absolutely a full-time job. And I just did, um, uh, training for foster parents actually about burnout. And we were just talking about how it, it touches everywhere. And like some of the red flags, like, you know, and they're like, we have this awesome foster parent, the agency was saying, but he just got a really bad, um, review from his job, like an employee evaluation. And we feel like it's because of the caregiving piece of caring for these kids is impacting the job. And so there's just, there's so many different layers to it. Um, And if you do work for Again, most of the people who listen to this are therapists, but you know, you never know. So I'll just say it in case there's somebody in your life that you're thinking about, or you have a spouse or a partner who works in a different industry. A lot of companies offer all different kinds of support um, that you can take advantage of. So again, like the flexibility, the FMLA, um, employee assistance programs is what I was thinking of. Exactly. If if the organization offers that, that can provide case management, that can provide therapy. It sounds like a lot of this, when we're supporting families going through these transitions, it's a matter of connecting them with resources. The resources are so important because again, it's just so multi-layered and the delegating can really help. And when you do use those resources, that gives you support. It can take some things off of your plate, which impacts your stress, but it also allows you hopefully a little bit more space to come to therapy and to process what's happening and the feelings that are coming up with that too. Because obviously we know if you are feeling stressed or stretched too thin or, you know, maybe just a lot of things from the past are coming up with somebody moving into this next phase in life, you want to work through that um, so that you can, you know, do what you need to do and have the space to do it. As folks are listening, you've touched on so many different aspects of working with individuals who are in a caregiver role or the individuals themselves as they're facing aging and how it's changing family dynamics. Where do you recommend clinicians go to get more information and training on this topic of supporting families through the aging process? Definitely locally, if you can connect with like a hospice or um, like Jewish family services type of thing in your area. They always have a lot of supports as well, and you don't need to be Jewish to use them, but they have oftentimes a lot of resources and support. Uh, You can, again, connect with local hospice. You can connect with your local area on aging. There's also the American, is it American Society on Aging? It's the ASA. Um, Hold on, I'll tell you what it is. Yep, American Society on Aging, um, and that's asaging.org. They have lots of free trainings also that you can use. Um, you can take more specific training on this issue through 
you know, some of the podcasts that have been on Clearly Clinical, or I also do CEs for continued.com. And I've done uh, quite a few on aging and dementia and chronic health and what that looks like. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us, Gabrielle. I think you bring so much compassion to this and because of your background in social work, able to I think, see the map really clearly of the places that we ideally would like to go as we are working with people who are facing these challenges. I appreciate you joining us and bringing all that you do uh, to the work that you do. And I encourage our listeners to look at some of those resources that Gabrielle has listed um, as a way for us to continue building out our education on this, because these are such trying circumstances we're talking about. Absolutely. It's not just, again, like I've said throughout this, not just one thing. It's a lot of different things. And it's physical, emotional, mental, behavioral. It's touching all pieces of your life. Thanks for having me. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.